Welcome to the Impact Consulting Podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Adriana Lee Greenblatt, who is a self-described recovering lawyer. Passionate about gender equality, she is now a global gender consultant, facilitator, and trainer, writer, and speaker, committed to building safer, gender-equitable, caring, and inclusive workplaces and organizations that are free of sexual harassment and gender-based violence. Adriana brings a much-needed human and heart-centered rather than a merely compliance-centered approach to these issues, and combined with her legal and subject matter expertise and background in human rights education. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Hi, I see Hubbers. I'm here with Adriana Lee Greenblatt, a global gender equality facilitator and consultant. And I will just let Adriana introduce herself. Great. So psyched to be here, Molly. I love what IC Hub is doing. So who am I? Big question. Generally, I'm based in Montreal. I'm a Montrealer by, you know, born and raised, but lived globally. I like to say to my clients and to you, I'm a recovering human rights lawyer. I'm a recovering lawyer mm-hmm. for various reasons. So my whole thread through my experience has been like a burning passion for social justice, gender equity, but I've had an interdisciplinary journey through my life. I think that that my whole drive to be like a social entrepreneur came also from my family. I was raised in a Montreal-based Jewish family, part of a minority linguistic ethnic community, always involved in entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. And I've always kind of felt this in my blood and I stepped into it. So through my journey, I started as a human rights lawyer. I worked in development, finally getting to my calling as a facilitator, consultant, not crazy about the word, but working more in building cultures of prevention. That's in a nutshell, but generally in terms of what I do, the big question, um, obviously it's, it's emerging, but I'll tell you that I'm coming into my fourth full year working with ALG Consulting, which is my consultancy. and I started it because I had this burning passion and I could see a gap in creating more human-centered approaches to issues of sexual harassment prevention, the thorny issues of building respect in organizations and workplaces more generally. And I started with that, with the important kind of vision that we need, you know, having been a recovering lawyer, working a lot in these issues as a lawyer from the victim side, seeing that folks really need to learn how to build relationships and apply these kinds of issues in their day-to-day lives and in their organizations. And there's a, there's still a gap and that's what I like to fill. A lot of the work that I do started more with sexual harassment prevention, particularly workshops, policy development, helping coach organizations on how to bring them to life in their day-to-day work and in their organizations. And it's really evolved to working more broadly in various issues of gender-based violence prevention, which is totally related. I see it as a spectrum. So I work a lot more. I still work a lot with organizations, universities, um, NGOs, et cetera, on these issues. I work more and more within communities as well. Um, A lot of the work that I do are workshops. The workshops that I do a lot are building a culture of respect, I like to say, within organizations and, you know, sexual harassment prevention, bringing them to, from awareness to action. I do PSHEA work more and more with NGOs, humanitarian aid organizations. And I really focus on creating reporting mechanisms that I bring to life through workshops 
and help folks know how to support safely and how to be survivor-centered, supportive, um, and being a safe person for someone to come forward to. So building positive relationships and accountable policies are two of the things that I think are really important in what I found in my work on, in a yeah. nutshell. Nice, yeah, that was a very good explanation. I feel like it covered a lot of ground, but I think I'll just ask for you, what would you say is a typical project or how long would it be? How many, you mentioned workshops, getting yeah. a bit more detail about that. Perfect, like the type of work I do. Well, mm -hmm. generally I'll tell you the, the main services that I tend to do are at workshops and um, policy and process development like complaints, I don't mean like that word, but complaints process development for organizations, followed by a workshop or starting with the workshop, and then coaching folks in the organization on how to implement them. So I'll give you an example. One of the projects I continue to work on with a client is started with longer sexual harassment awareness prevention for various sectors with a lot of partners working with the UN Women series of partners on sexual harassment prevention then helping them with model complaints mechanisms for various organizations, then coaching the people in those organizations on creating those mechanisms for their organization and how do they work and how do you implement them in that organization in that context because you have to tailor them. And I do a lot of work on that. Like that could be a long-term project over say six months where it starts with the workshop then I help them with the mechanism or the policy, and then I do some coaching, which is one of my favorite parts where I get to work with HR or program lead and get to really put it on the ground into life because policies are kind of easy, I say, but actually helping them, like what are the risks in their organization for say sexual harassment and how are you going to create a policy that's real and how are you going to implement it after with your staff? How are you going to roll it out? How are you going to communicate it? There's so many things involved with that. And the last thing that I tend to do a lot more these days is the other services basket. And I'll say that that roughly covers content creation. I've been doing a lot of issue briefs for UN clients on gender-based violence. And I write for my own purposes on my website, advocacy thought leadership posts on based on my experience. Um, and I do a lot of facilitated knowledge sharing, like panel discussion, knowledge sharing. And I'm doing a lot more of that through COVID. So that's becoming an emerging area of typical work. I hope that answers the question, Molly. Yeah, yeah, that does. Absolutely. And kind of also in that vein, I, when, when you were speaking, I was wondering, how do you get clients? Is it something that they have identified as a need and they reach out to you? Or how do you kind of convince an organization or how do you bring it to their awareness that their harassment policy might not be up to date or... Yeah, that's a great question. The convince is a great word too. It's like, you can't always convince, right, Clive? I think it's a, it's a bit of column A and column B that you mentioned. I think for me, one of the big sources and why I'm lucky is that I love networking. Like it doesn't feel like a chore to me. I actually love building connections as part of my ongoing work as a facilitator, not just actually a training and facilitator, but actually facilitator relationships. That's something that I love and it comes naturally to me. So I do have a lot of work that comes from me having built relationships over time with my clients. And I'm lucky to have worked sustainably with some of these clients over, say, UN Women over three years with some of the same partners and seeing the progression. And it's a joy that not all consultants get to do, but it's 
because I really put effort into building personal and professional relationships over time so that they say, oh, you know what? It started with me doing one workshop, having to prove that I had a value add, say, helping them. Then there were good results. And it kind of, they're like, oh, the project is continuing. Let's call Adriana for this part. So it's, when it starts with them sometimes having a need or a project often that they're looking for a particular consultant with. So it may have started often when I started, I was becoming a really good proposal writer. I just wrote a series of proposals. And then over time, once I get to know the client, I talk with them once they get to know my style, my approach, and that it resonates, they tend to come back for something more creative, longer term that we can kind of put into the project, right? So it started with more formal TORs, which I still do as well. But over time, we kind of co-create what they might need because my approach is, is unique. So I, I tend to do a lot of capacity building to kind of follow up on those projects with those clients. Yeah, I think that's a common narrative with a lot of consultants or facilitators is that getting in the door is kind of one thing. And then once you're in, you can do more co-creation and maybe do the project that you actually want to do versus what is outlined by a TOR. Exactly. Um, And how do you manage your relationships? Have you always just been really good at keeping in contact with people or is there any kind of tips that you would have for someone who Mm. is maybe shy or reluctant to do that or I don't know is there a way that any tips and tricks or has it just really come naturally to you well it look I will say that I tend to be sociable person I remember when I was younger in school even back then the teachers would say she's a good bright student she gets distracted by you know talking to a lot of folks because I always love making connections so now I've learned to harness that as a, a positive trait but that said I also weirdly enough have an introverted side so I get your question is totally good. And there's some folks who just, networking can be tiring. Even for someone like me, I have both sides to it. So there are various ways to do it. I think one tip I'd say is I do what feels natural for me in terms of what lights me up. And I've kind of done some work on thinking what client would sort of light me up, aligning with the needs and thinking about over time, what is my real value added? And when it feels like a natural kind of flow to reach out, I do. I often don't, it's not that I don't push because I, I, like any consultant, I'm always having to network. There's an insecurity there in terms of finances. So you always have to be networking. But I tend to go to what feels natural to me. So I say even for an introvert, maybe what connections might feel natural. And if it's not necessarily, cold calling is not for everyone like that. Social media, I don't tend to love having cold contacts over social media, which some folks say to do, right, to build client relationships. I build more personal relationships over time, which may also help an introvert. But getting in the door, I'd say maybe taking stock of what really excites you to go out for first, like what would be really, and do an alignment, you know, what do I really bring and what would be natural for me to go for? And then think about how you want to get there. The how I think it depends on your personality. I don't think there's one particular way to do it. Social media might work for some consultants who are wanting to start building their credibility rather than doing cold calls. Maybe that would be something you can work with someone who can help you with your social media profile. Like that could be a strategy. And speaking to folks like me, like you, like Loxanne, like so many of us, 
to kind of generate ideas for what works over time. I've worked with a lot of new women entrepreneurs who are kind of figuring out what approach will work for them. I'd say the last big tip that's helped me and others is joining networks like the IC Hub, joining other networks like there's the Society of Gender Professionals, which is a great supportive network of academics and consultants, bringing from all over the world in a supportive way, co-create and build knowledge on issues of gender equality internationally. And having these networks and this base has built my confidence and relationships. And I'd say for anyone using an introverted, these kinds of supportive networks are also great. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. And okay, I'm going to ask you about your favorite things about being a freelancer. And I think I'm also curious about what drove you to get into freelancing in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking that might be included in this. So anyways, keeping that in our minds, but yeah, that's the question. What are the three things that you like most about freelancing? I'll keep in mind the driving question because I love that question too. If I don't answer it, we can circle back, Molly. Okay. I love it. Intention's so important. So I love these questions of what do I like and not like? And it was hard for me to come up with just three, but generally speaking, I'll say being independent, I'll give you like three adjectives, right? Independence and the autonomy, which are related, are two of the really big things that I love and the variety. So I'll kind of expand on that. The independence is so important to me because um, being external to the politics of an organization has been really helpful for me because I worked in gender equality on gender-based balance issues within the organization, right? And creating policies, but you know, like having worked for organizations, politics is everywhere. So I often have this like burning passion to move forward, move forward, which I have to kind of like take a deep breath and be like, okay, we got to start with where people are at. But when you have politics layered there, it's hard to get stuff done. I find that it suits me really well because I got that passion to keep going with the good practices to be independent of the organization. And I also find it's related to the economy. I'm able to be external to the politics so I feel like I'm always interested in emerging good practices in these areas of violence prevention, sexual harassment prevention, more human-centered ways of doing it, facilitation. I always, I just love looking up that stuff and getting involved in giving advice on those good practices to various organizations is what I love about being a consultant. That leads to the variety. I get to work cross-sector, which is very natural to me. I'm very interdisciplinary. I get to work with various clients. And that kind of helps me do this facilitated. I'm getting into that more during COVID, seeing where there is gaps in communication between different sectors working on similar issues that shouldn't be siloed is something that I love as a consultant. I work with different UN organizations, some of them working on, say, gender-based violence. I work a lot on PSHEA, Prevention Sexual Harassment, Exploitation, and Abuse. And they're all forms of, of GBV, but there's a lot of practitioners that are working in silos in organizations. And I have the the luxury, I guess, or the joy and privilege of working with different sectors. And I'm starting to see where they need to speak together. So being an independent consultant, I wouldn't have been able to do that had I just been working for one sector and one client and one organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think those three words resonate with me as well. And I also not... Yeah, I also fled the politics of (laughs) 
organizations because it just feels like yeah I guess when you have a group of people all working together all the time you just tend to get yeah you just it's inevitable right you get politics and it makes it really hard for you to do what you think is objectively the best thing to do because you're like oh do I need to please that person is that going to make that person angry and as an independent consultant then you know you don't want to make your clients angry but there's less of that like taking sides and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 They, they <laughs> tend to, there's a luxury in a way of being independent. You do at your external. So I do feel like I'm, I'm able to give a little bit more counsel about good practices that I might have to be a bit more cautious not to do if I'm in the organization. Oh, I shouldn't go there. It's going to yeah. feather, like you said, ruffle feathers. Yeah. And I think also sometimes an employer kind of thinking about like who's above you. And like, can I criticize that person or something like that? But as a consultant, I think that you feel a little bit more open to be like, well, you asked for my advice. This is what I advise. You can do what you want to do ultimately, but you're in the position to be giving advice as opposed to wondering, are you going to make your manager angry? Are you going to make your boss angry or feel like you're inconveniencing them? So yeah, so (laughs) there's definitely some benefits there. But of course, with benefits, there are also disadvantages. So what would you say are the top three disadvantages? Yeah, some of them are related, right? There's like two sides to every coin. Believe like strengths can also be weaknesses. Like the other side of things, right? All the time, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) All the time in life (laughs) and all my strengths are also weaknesses. Yes. Generally, look, I'll say before I get into what related to what we talked about, I put here first is like the insecurity that I spoke about earlier, the uncertainty that comes with being a consultant is real. It's one of the trade-offs that I'm consciously always making in terms of knowing that you don't necessarily have the luxury of having one paycheck to the next. I have you know the benefit of working long-term with clients, but that said, it's sustaining those relationships over time. And Related to that, as a, I don't know if you can relate to this as like a woman identified entrepreneur, having to negotiate your value, your worth, how to negotiate payment is a bit of a thorn in my side. It's a love-hate relationship because I know it's an area of growth for me and so many women and so many people who are less maybe represented or have been through challenges in entrepreneurship. It's harder if you have power differentials in, in stating what you're worth and asking for it and really justifying costs and things like that and learning how to navigate that. Not my favorite thing, but an important thing. And I think it's it's a lot of growth over time. And it's something that I'm proud to have built over time, more skills and being able to more assertively or fake it till I make it in terms of the confidence to be able to say, look, this is what I do. And I've been at this for various years, kind of having that confidence to enter the table on the same power level as the person you're negotiating with, as a consultant. Oh, yeah, um, so definitely. Those are, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see you nodding. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, even now I have, I have to think about my rate or what I'm going to suggest as my rate. I have to think about it for like days before I actually send the email saying, this is how much. And yeah, setting those boundaries and trying to quantify the value of your work, it's really challenging. And I agree there is this kind of, gender element to it as well or I'm mm-hmm. sure there's other elements of how you kind of see yourself in society and how that affects what you actually feel comfortable giving as your right exactly so it is a huge challenge area I've heard from a lot of other female consultants and other consultants as well that 
one of the biggest problems that they have. And on the IC Hub, the most popular article that we have by a long shot, just looking at the numbers of views is article about how to set your fees oh that one yeah, yeah. that's so interesting that's the most popular Molly yeah. by a, yeah by a huge huge amount and so we're actually thinking of like how we can also expand that and give people more mm. specific guidance because the worst thing I've looked it up myself and the worst thing advice you get is like you know think about what it's worth and then and then put a price tag on it and you're like that I need a number like what are people my experience level doing the same work generally charging yeah so I can set that watermark on there and then kind of go from there that's great I think that's great that you're thinking about that because there's clearly a need and that's what I attracted me to IC Hub is that you're kind of putting things out there and naming things that I think there's been a bit of a stigma about talking about so there's been a bit of a culture of sort of I don't think secrecy is the right word but like people there's been this kind of competition and that's what I also don't love about the we the word consultant I'm trying to reframe that whole kind of narrative as a consultant which is why I tend to go with facilitator first because that's more accurate about the way I tend to also relate to other consultants and my clients like talking about this stuff together and I see how facilitating that I think is so important and also talking about it earnestly with clients and I think also I'm trying to be more and more honest with clients too, so they don't necessarily understand in their position the day-to-day of our lives. Like, yes, there's certain uh, privileges in being able to work independently, but also being able to be paid is like, this is how I get by. And some folks, I I don't have children, but there's so many that are, that's so many people that depend on them as well. And they're independent and other entrepreneurs, we got to pay the bills. So I think it's reminding also clients to sometimes forget. They're like, can't you just do this for free? And they have this, there's a stigma attached to also women asking for a little bit more anyways. But I think reminders like that, and then talking to like IC Hub and other people to destigmatize that and be like, that's just part of the jam. And it's okay to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, with the rates as well as a as an independent consultant, you are basically self-employed. So you aren't getting benefits. You're not getting vacation days, these types of things. So even yesterday I was actually sick and I was, Mm. I just couldn't work. I was sick. So I just couldn't work. And I was thinking if I was traditionally employed, I would have called my boss and said, you know, I'm not coming in today. I would have taken a sick day. You know, you kind of have to build that into your prices because there's no one you're obviously going to communicate with your client that you're not coming in, but they're not paying you for that directly. So you have to build that stuff into your prices. Mm -hmm. And then the resulting price can seem like a lot for just one day's work, but they're paying for all your expertise, all those years of you learning how to do it. All the years, Molly, that's important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what they're paying for. Not really just like an hour of just a random person's time. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that that's one thing that has made it a little bit more difficult for people when yeah. pricing, because the number does seem kind of high, especially if I have a friend who works in Brussels, she has to pay like 40% tax or something crazy. So, exactly. I pay quite high too in, yeah. in Canada and Quebec. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to put it aside. Like you always, I have to factor that in and then put it aside in a bank and not look at it until after. Yeah, you have to put it aside, but then it like, ooh, the chunk of which you get paid goes down significantly because it doesn't 
come out automatically from your paycheck, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you have to actually right? pay it yourself, which is a sad day. Yeah, that's smart. I will say just like Molly, on the whole things I didn't love about like flip side, one area that we were we talking about before we we recorded that I thought was very interesting was also this idea of like coming in as a quote unquote expert. I'm putting like it in brackets. It's good and but there's negatives and positives to that, right? I tend to like I own more and more that I do have a certain expertise in the area that I can add to. It's like a value add, but I tend to like to and think it's very appropriate in my work and important to co-create with the clients that I work with. And they know best, especially when I'm working in these areas where I'm working intersectionally with partners that may be working in different countries and different regions, they are well positioned to give me expertise about their experience within that organization. And if I'm working on something very sensitive, like um, survivor support guides for say people experiencing violence in the organization, I want to speak directly with the folks in the organization and help have them explain to me what's been going on and good practices already. They have an expertise. So it's like coming in as an expert, it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes clients might also say like, you have the expertise, I don't have any. And it's not true. Yeah, you're nodding because I'm like, yeah. I have, I'm like, yes, there is a point at which I will give you recommendations because sometimes clients just want like, tell me what to do. There's a lot of that, right? That's a human thing. And I tend to give the annoying lawyer answer sometimes, which is, can't exactly tell you what to do. I can give you <laughs> certain recommendations. And then I also have to hear from you. You have a voice. And I think it's like, it's an interesting challenge, that whole expert model thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for me, I position myself as a fundraising expert. So they expect, so a lot of clients, not every client, but some of the clients, expect me to come in with bags of money in each hand and just set it down on their desk and be like, there, I've raised all your funds. And there's actually a lot of work that they need to do on their end to be ready to pitch if they do get in contact with a potential donor, to pitch in the right way, Mm -hmm. to contact the right donor. There's all these steps that go into it. And it's very rare that unless they have an application, like a grant application they want me to write that they've already picked out, they've already assessed that it's the right donor and they have a really strong case for support and they have all that information all ready to go, which is very, very rare, then they have to build the capacity within the organization to actually pitch a project. Interesting so, in your work. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit, it is that double-edged sword because there is this certain expectation of expertise. So I've had to really try to make it clear when I start on given your situation, this is what I think I can help on. Mm. But I'm not going to actually show up with a bag of money. I can help you pitch better. I can help you find better, more appropriate donors, but I'm not going to actually maybe get you the money that you need. And that's kind of a tough thing to say when you're trying to drum up business. Oh yeah. I imagine in your work, especially with the money that's involved, that's a, can be a thorny, interesting discussion to have, I imagine. Yeah. And there's also, you know, the pressure of winning or losing a bid, like, if you win it, you get the money. And even if you do a really good bid, but it doesn't get selected for whatever reason, then it just feels like nothing came of it. But at the same time, maybe there was a lot of thinking and processing that went into developing a really good application and maybe they could use Mm. it again. Oh, that's a great, that's a really interesting point, Molly. It makes me think like 
I always try to do this intentionally. And sometimes when I get busy, I also forget, but it's this idea of like, celebrating our wins and like taking stock along the way if I have because I have a lot of long-term consultancies this day so beyond just I did the deliverable though I try to when the client has time like assess over time to see how are things going okay this is a good thing like not just think about the things we have left to do but the learning like for yeah. example your example is a great one like let's say we didn't get the bid that's not the only definition of success or results so that's a big thing I've been um, trying to do over time. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Having the milestones, I guess, for yeah. what you're achieving, even if it's not the best ultimate result, it's the progress. Exactly, it's a continuous. I try to tell clients I'm very much a continuous improvement. I'm influenced by sort of the agile thinking and facilitated approaches. I've done a lot of work on that. So just continuously learning. And having sort of an emerging practice is, is something I try to clarify with my clients. I believe that in my area of work, it has to be that way. You have to keep looking at your policies. You have to keep talking to your people and seeing how processes are working. It's a constant thing. So milestones is a great word, Molly, that I think I'm going to start to use. That's a way to, to define okay, success over time. That's a great learning, which leads into my next question about what are your biggest lessons learned as a facilitator and consultant? That's like a big question. I'd say I, I thought about this question before because you sent me this question. I was like, I think some of them immediately related to planning as a consultant, particularly, I'll say first, creating work plans with clients is something from the get-go <laughs> that like they often might have an approach like this is a is a project-based thing that they hire you for, right? And they're like, the thunder says you have to do X, Y, and Z. And but internally, I think it's really important to have a meeting right off the bat and cr I create, whether it's in the deliverables or not, like a co-created work plan with them. And it also helps us have that natural discussion about setting parameters, expectations, and then revising it over time. Because if you're working with a client over a long period of time, again, that's where the milestones conversation can come in. So um, having a work plan, that I always create so that they know. And sometimes it's quite detailed. Like this is what I think is going to be involved and they've got a roadmap. And I would advise anyone, especially in my area of work to do something like that, even though, even if it's a training, like sometimes it's a one-off training, but I still want to have a call with the client and talk about what's going to be involved and what's going to happen when. And I think that's a great way to build connection and clarity from yeah. the get-go. Yeah. I don't know about you, if that's your yeah. practice. Agree with that. And I actually learned that from Loxanne because he always would say what you're doing, what you think is going to happen and what the client think is going to happen are very different things. Yeah. And through and you're starting at these different starting points and throughout the project, you need to be talking, communicating every step. This is what I'm going to do. Is that what you want? Yeah. It does this make sense to you, whatever. And keep working on that until you end up in kind of the same place, but never and he said that and I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But I think that also it's clearly defined what they want me to do. But then I've learned that expectations and reality are just so different. So, and you can't communicate it enough. I've never been like, oh, I think I over communicated that. I think. Right. <laughs> it's never happened. It's <laughs> actually, that's never happened. I actually, I tend to be an over communicator anyway. So I'm lucky in that respect, but I do think it's. I actually think even more, like as I've gotten more into consulting, I communicate even more like, and having 
consistent meetings throughout, especially if you have a long-term client like I do often, is just having those milestone discussions and then revisiting the work plan because sometimes different work emerges when you've got a long-term client. There are some clients that have much more specific deliverables, UN clients that they're carved out. That said, it's still not clear what's necessarily entailed within that deliverable. Say I'm writing a report or knowledge product or, or whatever talking about the specifics of it, you often are surprised, or I am, by like, oh, okay, this is what I thought, but this is what they need, and let's talk, right? Yeah. We're often on the same page, but talking, no matter what, is important to see where we're not or when we are and building clarity. Yeah, exactly, and kind of sharing a sample of what you're doing or sharing an outline, and yeah, I've always been a bit surprised by, oh, wow, this is not what I expected at all. Yeah. And I'm so glad that I didn't spend 10 hours going through the whole application when actually in the, you know, the outline, they already pinpointed some things they wanted to be done differently. So, yeah, I think that that's really good advice. And I got that from Loxanne. And of course, I didn't believe him until I experienced <laughs> myself. And then I was like, ooh. <laughs> and you know what in that on that vein uh, Molly I often find clients just like me or anyone can discover a little bit more of what they wanted particularly when it's like content creation once some work is done so that's yeah. why for me sometimes like oh we thought we wanted this but not the scope because that's another discussion but the nature of the work or the want or the ask might shift a bit or clarify a bit so that's why having those meetings with like you said maybe an outline I'm learning to do that before I do 10 hours of work and then they say oh okay no we want this and they clarify or they thought they wanted something else but they clarify I've had that experience with some yeah, clients definitely um, and I'd rather have that it, it happens particularly in my area where it does happen things emerge like oh no we want to tackle this issue too is that okay is that in scope and then we have this discussion that's really important yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's kind of unavoidable. We're humans. So totally. <laughs> and if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to yourself? I think one thing like I'm thinking of myself when I first started and I had, I like to say like I had one foot in the door of consulting one foot out. Like I wasn't sure I had the goods. Like I started my consulting way before I actually fully committed. So I, I had like fits and starts, like, and, you know, I registered the business, I taught a bit, did some trainings here and there. And I think maybe it's, you know, cliche to say, but confidence is the word that comes to mind and a bit of a fake it till you make it. Like I would tell myself back then something simple, but you've got this and just learning to trust a bit more and also learning to state my value confidently to clients. And I know that that's work over time. But I would tell myself back then, because I could see myself in interviews, I can see myself back then, like seven years ago, doing my first interviews with clients. And of course, you're going to be nervous the first time, for sure. I don't blame my past self for that at all. But I would say just to harness the, the knowledge that, and, and take stock before the gifts and the, the, the value you do have before saying an interview like that to really say, I got this. I still have to tell myself and I do and it helps before a workshop. I got this. And I think that's so important as a solopreneur more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people will need to hear that, like to hear that. So yeah, definitely not Good. alone. You've got this. Especially <laughs> if you're feeling alone and you're just starting out, 
literally just saying you've got this a few times before you start something new, which is going to be hard, is can be everything. Yeah. Even if you fail, that's part of the you got this and you're gonna. <laughs> yeah, definitely you'll fail and then learn from it. So. Yeah, you're still got this and you're still gonna be okay. Just knowing that you're gonna land on your feet, having a support system, that's what you got this means. It doesn't mean I do it perfectly, but it means I know I'll be okay, even if it's gonna be hard. That's what I've had to harness in myself over time as a consultant. Yeah, that's great. And then... I guess if anyone is listening and would like to find out more about you and maybe connect with you, do some of that networking we discussed, how can they do that? Well, I'm definitely very active on LinkedIn. I've had a lovely relationship with it, but now it's love. And so you can see that I'm on there, Adriana Lee G, you'll see. And I also have an ALG Consulting, my own business page. So you can check it out and follow me there. And you can also check out my website www.algconsulting.ca and my LinkedIn profile will be able to show you that website. And there's also a way to have chat for chat with me that you can book on my website. I use Calendly, so you can connect with me there. Perfect. Yeah. We will also put those links in the show notes so people can find them quickly and easily. Yeah. So I guess that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. And it was really helpful, very insightful. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was insightful and helpful. And thank you for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Impact Consulting Podcast. If you want more free advice and guidance on becoming a freelance consultant in the social impact and international development space, head to impactconsultinghub.com and subscribe to our mailing list. We'd love to see how we can help. Thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.